0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: know oh, no, no, no. Why is
2: light so far?
3: Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data's... I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding.
4: Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be finding out how quantum forces get things in a bit of a twist and testing out our reporters' knowledge of this year's science headlines.
5: Plus, a roundup of some of this year's top science tomes and some sensational science themed seasonal songs. I'm Ali Jennings.
4: And I'm Benjamin Thompson. So Ali, it's your first time on hosting duty and what a show to do it in, our special festive edition of the podcast. Agreed, it's the perfect Christmas present, especially looking forward to hearing those special science
5: songs in a bit. First up though, on this week's show I want to put a bit of quantum in your Christmas. I've been finding out how quantum fluctuations can create a turning force on some objects seemingly out of thin air. Down at the smallest scales the nanoscopic world of viruses and proteins, quantum effects start to exert forces on matter. One of these effects is called the Casimir torque. The Casimir torque exerts a turning force on an object. To measure this in a lab, researchers put two metal plates in a vacuum and then bring them very close together. In a vacuum, photons pop in and out of existence all the time, creating electromagnetic waves reflecting between the two plates. To induce Casimir torque, the plates need to be optically anisotropic. That means they reflect light differently depending on how you rotate them. Rotating the plates also changes the energy of the reflected light. Here's Jeremy Munday, a researcher from the University of Maryland, to explain how this causes the plates to turn.
3: So um, nature likes to minimise the energy of the system, and so what it would do is it would cause one plate to rotate with respect to the other in order to minimise the energy of of the system. Um, In this rotation, that's that's the, the torque. So it's a torque that's induced by these quantum fluctuations.
5: Jeremy's team wanted to measure the strength of this effect, but to generate enough torque to measure, you need to make your surfaces as large and as close together as possible. Although large in a quantum context is still quite small.
3: So, for example, in, in our experiment, um, the surface area that we're looking at, this it's about a centimetre squared. Um, that we're then bringing near another centimetre squared surface that is uh, only 10 to 100 nanometers separation between the two.
5: That's roughly the equivalent of dangling one free-spinning football field directly above another football field whilst keeping both separated by the width of a human hair. And even if you manage that, the torque generated is still small. Very small. So how do you find something sensitive enough
3: to measure it? So rather than looking at um, two anisotropic plates, uh, we use one anisotropic plate and one anisotropic fluid, Um, and so uh, what that allows us to do is take the first plate, the solid plate, uh, put on a thin coating, and then we bring in that that second material, and so what we're using is a a liquid crystal, and now this liquid can rotate however it wants to in order to to align its optical axis based on, on this torque.
5: So the liquid crystal can rotate freely and has a large surface area that's only nanometers from the solid crystal. Now the liquid crystal can turn when it encounters the Casimir torque. But the team didn't let the liquid crystal move completely freely. They held the top of the liquid crystal stationary. Now when the bottom of the liquid crystal rotated, it put a twist in the crystal. Then the team shone polarised light through the twisted liquid crystal.
3: And what the liquid crystal also does is it rotates... The light so if we send through polarized light it rotates that light so depending on how much the light is rotated we know how much the liquid crystal is rotated and from that we can work out what the torque is
5: when the team shone polarized light through the liquid crystal and saw the light's polarization change they knew they were twisting the crystal with casimir torque and they could see this happen with the naked eye the light shining through jeremy's apparatus makes a delicate cross on a screen as torque is exerted on the crystal, the lines of the cross broaden or shrink. So what's it like to actually see a quantum effect in action?
3: Well, it was exciting because the, the the idea, I mean, usually when we're thinking about, you know, quantum effects, I mean, these are really small things. You have to use, you know, an atomic force microscope or something like this. But now with this, we're, we're doing something that's on the scale of millimeters and you can just pick up a sample and take a look at it and say, oh, there's, there's a torque here that's causing these things to rotate. Um, so for, for me, I thought that was, that was a really exciting way to see kind of a macroscopic manifestation of this.
5: We are talking about a tiny amount of force here, no more than 40 nanonewton meters per meter squared. This is so small that it could be easily overwhelmed by other factors, like the turbulence from flowing fluids, for example. So what could we usefully do with this newly measured Casimir torque?
3: Um, I, I wouldn't expect any uh, Casimir torque-powered cars in the near future. But, but we're hoping that by better understanding these, these effects that there, there will be implications for liquid crystal displays and also for um, nano mechanical and, and micro mechanical systems where you've got kind of small-scale um, parts that can move around that are influenced by these, these quantum fluctuations, either forces or torques. Um, and we hope that this gives kind of a new knob for controlling those.
5: That was Jeremy Monday from the University of Maryland. You can read his paper over at nature.com slash nature.
4: Well, listeners, it's that time of year when the podcast breaks out into song. Up first is Unto Us A Child Is Born, all about the discovery of an ancient hominin who was half Neanderthal and half Denisovan. I'll put the lyrics up on the show's page over at nature.com slash nature slash podcast, and you can sing along at home.
5: was Unto Us A Child Is Born, performed by the Girls' Choir at the Simon Langton Boys' School. The lyrics were by Sharmini Bundell, and it was directed by Emily Renshaw
4: Kidd. Stay tuned, we'll have more songs coming up later in the show. Ali, tis the season where I'll be taking a lot of very long train journeys to see my extended family, who, obviously, I love dearly. Obviously. But what are you going to do on these arduous journeys?
5: Start another TV series you'll never finish? Distractedly peck at your phone until the battery light flashes? Stare listlessly out of the window as the bleak midwinter races past?
4: Um, I actually was thinking about maybe reading a book. Oh uh, yes.
5: Books. Good shout.
4: But which one? There are so many. Well, that is a fair point. But luckily, I was joined in the studio earlier this week by somebody who has picked a few of her favourite science books of 2018. It's time to talk science books. And who better to talk about them than Barb Kaiser, Nature's Books and Arts Editor. So 2018 then, Barb, and you have covered hundreds of books. Uh, Has it been a strong
6: year for science-related reading? It's been a huge year. And that makes it incredibly difficult to winnow down the ones that you really love. Well, you've chosen three of your
4: favourite books of 2018, Barb. What's the first one?
6: Okay, so this book is by the science historian Patricia Farah and it's called A Lab of One's Own. So she takes a really interesting tack towards the whole history of suffragism in Britain and also in the United States. She looks at it all through a science lens. This is a book that's bulging with stories of women who many were either scientists or they were students of science who struggled in the 19th century to be accepted, to, to even have the opportunity of studying in university. And of course, they were denied degrees really for decades after.
4: And so some stories of some early pioneers then.
6: Exactly. So Farah gives us the backstory she gives us the women in science who were leading the way and who were out there sometimes on the streets protesting. She takes us through the process of the First World War. And she illustrates the aftermath, which was a very mixed bag. So for instance, she isolates an amazing story. There was a physiologist called Mabel Purefoy Fitzgerald. And At the age of 100 in 1972, she was finally awarded her degree. This was three quarters of a century after she studied. It's ridiculous. There was also Dorothea Uh She worked with Francis Darwin, who was Darwin's son. He was a botanist. And she published papers and lectured at Newnham College. But she was never formally recognized. So you can imagine the kind of Tremendous frustration that women felt at that time. So this is clearly
4: a history book, but does it sort of compare and contrast and and look at some of the issues that are going on now?
6: To a degree. I mean, this is definitely a history. So Farah is concentrating on the difficulties at uh, universities that were experienced by these early women science students. She states that the battle was lost and We see that. We see countless reports of how difficult women in many fields of science still find it. So of course, advances have been made. And of course, progress is there. But we're just not where we should be with women in science.
4: Well, let's move on to your second pick, Barb, and it's about neuroscience. Now, I have certainly used the phrase, the brain is the most complex machine in the universe that we know about. But perhaps this book is discouraging that thought.
6: I wouldn't say it's exactly discouraging it. It's recontextualizing, reframing. So Alan Jasnoff is a neuroengineer, and his book, Biological Mind, is a kind of takedown of what he calls the cerebral mystique. So, you know, as you trawl scientific literature, uh, you'll often see images of brains glowing, and it's all very gasp-inducing and marvelous. But what Jasanoff is trying to say is that these are manifestations of skewed thinking. We know that the brain is in the skull, we know it's in the body, but we increasingly view it uh, in isolation. And this is becoming problematic, actually, in many social ways. And it even skews our thinking about some of the research. So, Because he's a neuroengineer, he's obviously looking at the mechanics of how the brain works. But what what he does in this book, and I really like this book, and I think he's a wonderful writer, is he reminds us that the brains are just organs. So they're messy, they're gummy, they're fatty, you know, and although they're obviously nothing like the kidneys, they're obviously nothing like the stomach, they are still awash with fluids. They're in the body, they're connected to the body. So... That's the beginning of his takedown.
4: Well, let's talk about your final pick of 2018, Bob. And being a microbiologist myself, I am delighted that this one has made your list.
6: I loved it. It's uh, David Quammen's The Tangled Tree. And it's the story of how Carl Woese and a group of other extremely radical biologists for their time basically took Darwin's little idea, which was his tree of life, and ultimately added another branch to it.
4: And this turned out to be, well, a pretty major branch, very close to the base of the tree.
6: Yes, this is the archaea, the single-celled microorganisms that were originally thought to be bacteria, but were found to be distinct.
4: Well, the story goes back, you know, several decades. Uh, How did Carl Woese go about sort of discovering this?
6: Woese was very interested in early genetic sequencing. So in the 60s, he and his team started to extract and sequence ribosomal RNA. But what we forget now some of us anyway, is that it was a Herculean task back then. It was hell. It involved years of perusing pieces of film with these sort of smudgy bands. That alone took hours and hours a day. But there were there were also all sorts of other aspects of lab work back then, like the use of radioactive materials and Kwaman really sort of paints this amazing picture of people in the lab uh, handling all this stuff rather cavalierly. So health and safety wasn't a big deal back then.
4: I mean, Bob, it does seem like this is a book about sort of phylogeny or, you know, the lineage of organisms, which potentially could be quite a dry subject.
6: Kwaman makes the wonderful aspect come alive. I think a summation of science that was considered outré, bizarre, beyond radical, ridiculous at the time, and then is finally accepted. I think it's important because this happens in science. And to see woes who never won a Nobel and I think was embittered by that, sort of honoured in this way, is a really good exercise. Well,
4: nice one, Barb. Thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, if you'd like to read our latest books and arts reviews, get yourself over to nature.com books dash culture.
5: Time for another seasonal song. This time we've got I Had a Little Rover about a certain plucky little Martian explorer called Opportunity. was I Had a Little Rover, performed by the Simon Langton Boys' School Choir, with lyrics by Lauren Morello and Noah Baker. It was directed by Emily Renshaw-Kidd.
4: Right then, everyone, I have dived into the props cupboard and dusted off my sparkliest jacket once again, because it's time for our annual quiz. We have an absolute dream team gathered here in the studio today. To my right, I've got Lizzie Gibney. Lizzie, thanks for joining me.
2: Hello, Ben. Thanks for having me. I am feeling festive and ready to go.
4: Are you ready to have your science knowledge tested? Always. Across from me, the one, the only, Charmony Bundell. Sharmini, how are you today?
2: I'm feeling ready for whatever this is.
4: And last, but by no means least, it's Charlotte Stoddard. Charlotte, thanks for coming along.
2: Thanks. I'm guessing I'm here to get all the answers wrong because I spent most of 2018 sleep deprived with two very small people.
4: So for this year's quiz, I'm going to be testing our guests' knowledge of some of the headlines that have appeared on nature.com slash news in 2018. Oh, no. In front of me, I have a selection of headlines, but some of the words are missing. Charlotte, Lizzie and Charmony, all you have to do is tell me what the missing words are. Listeners, you should, of course, play along at home too. Easy, right?
1: Yep. Definitely.
4: Well, let's find out with our first headline. And this is one that is particularly timely, given that the film has just come out in the UK. Your headline is, Stand back, Aquaman. Harpoon throwing blank takes aim at blank. What are the missing words?
2: I reckon this is going to be some kind of crazy animal behaviour story. So it's going to be a harpoon throwing... Is the Aquaman part of this relevant...? What, what does, does that Aquaman be? look like? He's that guy from Game of Thrones, but with scales on. Does he have fins? Is he a mermaid? I don't know.
4: Oh, my goodness. I think we've gone slightly off-beam <laughs> on, on this one, I will say. Aquaman is a bit of a red herring. It's it's nothing to do with the animal kingdom at all.
2: <gasps> okay, how Ooh. about a lander that yeah. is going to do some kind of space experiment by throwing a harpoon at something?
4: Well, you're definitely getting warmer. It is a space story. I've got it. Space junk. Absolutely right, Lizzie. The headline is, stand back, Aquaman. Harpoon throwing satellite takes aim at space junk. And this is a story from September about an experimental space mission called Remove Debris, which sent a small satellite up into a low Earth orbit. So far, this satellite has used a net to snare some space junk, and next year, we'll be firing a harpoon to see if it can snag some more. Space junk is a real problem. Uh, Apparently, the US military tracks around 20,000 objects in orbit that measure between five and 10 centimetres across. And as they're travelling at, what, several kilometres a second, they could do some, you know, real damage to spacecraft and what have you.
2: I was thrown off by the Aquaman. I think whoever writes these headlines is a lot more in touch with popular culture than me.
4: That may be the case, Germany. But let's see how you get on with this next headline. Dive bombing hummingbirds add a blank to impress mates. Okay, one more time. Dive-bombing hummingbirds at a blank to impress mates. So what's that missing word?
2: Loop the loop? Yeah, I'm thinking (laughs) backflips. Well, the other thing I was thinking of was poop. That's not not impressive,
3: though, is it? Well, it depends if you
2: create, like, poo art in the air. I thought it could look quite good. (laughs) A bit like the red arrows, you mean. Yeah, streaming out behind them. Spelling perhaps the name of their love. That would be nice, wouldn't it, in, in the
4: sky? So, that's the answer you're going for is Does no midair. One else think poo. poop. Is that? Oh. Do you know what? I'll, I'll put you out of your misery here, everyone. The answer is twist. Ah. Dive bombing hummingbirds add a twist to impress mates. And this headline is from a story we published back in April about male Costas hummingbirds. While male North American hummingbirds woo females by diving at them head on at high speeds, the Costas hummingbirds quite literally add a bit of a twist. The males twist their tail feathers at the last moment of the dive, which creates this uh, high-pitched sound, which they can direct at the females, like sort of a, a megaphone. And apparently the faster the dive, the higher the pitch.
2: We would not impress female hummingbirds, is what we've learnt here. <laughs> <laughs> Proofing on them. And... They would be thinking this is a disastrous night yeah. out.
4: Let's do another headline and see how you get on with this one. 100 blanks and a long, dark tunnel. One neuroscientist quest to unlock the secrets of blank.
2: Are the one hundred blanks, the same as the last blanks.
4: These are different blanks. <gasps> oh, so we've
2: got 100 oh, blanks. I mean, is one of them brains? it's it's, it's neuroscience? Neurons. That's Something to do guess. with brains, yeah. isn't it?
4: It, it, it definitely <laughs> is a neuroscience story, Charlotte. I'll give you that. But, <laughs> but How could you tell? If,
2: You're if so we insightful. could maybe be
4: slightly more specific, <laughs> and, and then we'll be fine, right? Um, is it mice? It's not mice. No. 100, mice.
2: Is that it's an animal?
4: It is an animal.
2: Worms. Oh, could be worms. Those worms where we know like every neuron that they have. It's the elegans. Yeah.
4: Okay, it's, it's not worms. I will give you a bit of a clue. We talked about Aquaman earlier, and this headline also is kind of related to another superhero. And uh, some people call bats. Bats, 100 bats, hundred bats. Hundred bats. Well done. Wait a done. sec. We made a film
2: about a load of bats in a tunnel. Oh, shamily. <laughs> This seems relevant. <laughs> and and their brains? Oh, uh, echolocation. No. Aww. Aww. I'll
4: tell you what it is, though, everyone, because you're very close. A hundred bats and a long dark tunnel. One neuroscientist's quest to unlock the secrets of 3D navigation.
2: Ah, okay. Uh, so it is echolocation. Really? Echolocation. Really. Yeah, in but, the bats, yeah. Yeah.
4: So this headline comes from a feature published in July, and it's about a team who are trying to learn more about navigating in 3D space by looking at the brain activity of Egyptian fruit bats as they fly down a very long, dark tunnel. And team, there is light at the end of this tunnel. Let's do one more story. And uh, and this is, a, this is a lovely story, actually, and I, I think it's terrific. See if you can guess the words missing from this headline. Amateur astronomer catches first glimpse of blank.
2: Is it something to do with the International Space Station?
4: It's not Charlotte. No. Is
2: it, It's not the um, the comet, the interstellar comet. Is it?
4: Ua mua mua. No, one. it's not actually, Lizzie. Mm. This one that was last year, I think. But no, this time it's uh, it's something different. Is
2: it a moon?
4: It's it's not a, a moon. Black hole. <laughs> nor is it a space station. Shall I tell you what it is?
2: Oh, I feel like we should be able to get this.
4: Amateur astronomer catches first glimpses of birth of a supernova.
1: Oh wow!
4: Yeah. Oh. So this is a story about amateur astronomer Victor Busso, and back in 2016, Victor was pointing his telescope at a spiral galaxy called NGC 613, and he saw on some images that he took a rapidly brightening blotch of light. It turns out that this light was probably from the very early stages of a supernova, and the chances of seeing something like this are apparently like, you know, winning the lottery twice in a week or something. Victor is a locksmith by day and an amateur astronomer in the evenings. And he was very modest about his finding and is quoted as saying, many times you ask yourself, why do I do this? Now I have found the answer.
2: That's lovely.
4: Well, everyone, there we have it for another quiz. And, And great work to the team here. Listeners, I hope you did as well, probably better, than the competitors here in the studio. But to my mind, you're all winners.
2: Yeah, it's Lizzie, isn't it? I'm not sure it was. I will be adding up when I listen back to the podcast, though, so don't worry.
4: Well, listeners, if you'd like to read more about the stories we've covered today and hundreds of other ones, head over to nature.com news. Well, speaking of news, it's time for our last news chat of 2018, and I can hardly believe it. I'm joined here in the studio by Richard Van Norden, Features Editor here at Nature. Richard, thanks for joining me.
7: It's a pleasure to be here, Ben.
4: Well, it's great to have you. So it's that time of year where we publish Nature's Ten. Richard, for our listeners who perhaps aren't quite so familiar with it,
7: what is Nature's Ten? Nature's Ten is a list of 10 people who mattered in science this year. And they really helped to sum up a lot of the big policy debates and research breakthroughs that happened in science in 2018. Well, you and I are going to go through a
4: few people on the list today, Richard. Richard. Now, last week was COP24, the UN's climate change conference, which was uh, held in Poland in Katowice, and uh, there was lots of discussion about the IPCC's very alarming report that was released back in October. Um, One of this year's Nature's Ten played a key role in this report.
7: Yeah, Valérie Masson-Delmotte, a French climatologist, she uh, had a key role in that report, She's co-chair of the IPCC working group that assesses the physical science of climate change and she helped to get all the authors together, coordinate the work and and get the report approved by governments. Uh, And these kinds of massive assessments normally take years to put together, but this special report in October, which was about what would the consequences be for the world if we could limit warming to 1.5 degrees C instead of 2 degrees C, that Uh, came together very quickly and it even incorporated research published just weeks before the final draft was submitted for review. And people might remember this got a lot of news media attention. It Mm. was presented in a really clear way, the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees, and also the social, governmental and technological policies that could foster change without exacerbating inequality and, and poverty. And the researchers on this report worked a little bit differently than they uh, often do for IPCC reports. Researchers from different disciplines worked together on every chapter to try and break down silos. And the people we talked to singled out Masson Delmotte's work to improve diversity among the author list. So women made up just 22% of the author team on the last assessment. On this one, it was 40%. Uh, And she also worked to elevate the role of early career scientists and researchers from the global south. And diversity and
4: inclusion, of course, very important, and particularly so to another member
7: of Nature's Ten this year. Yeah, we also highlight Jess Wade, a physicist in the UK, who has started writing a Wikipedia page every day to highlight scientists from underrepresented groups. And she took up this page a day habit when she learned that 90% of Wikipedia editors are men and only about 18% of people profiled on the site are women. So by now, she's created about 400 pages and she hosts loads of editathons in which people create and, and edit new content. And that's created huge visibility and momentum around the world for recognition of underrepresented groups in science. And Wade was also in the spotlight this year, people might remember this one, when she spoke about her engagement work at a conference at CERN. That conference was where the physicist Alessandro Strumia delivered a presentation questioning women's ability in physics, and as people may remember... Strumia was suspended from his work with CERN after that presentation, which Wade highlighted on social media. So she's a real champion of diversity, which is why we've, we have picked her this year.
4: Well, something that you and I have chatted about on the News Chat before, Richard, is Plan S – And somebody very central to Plan S has also made the list.
7: Yeah, we selected Robert Jan Smits, who is the veteran bureaucrat at the European Commission, who was given essentially one last mission, should he choose to accept it, which he did. So he had one year to get funders to demand instant open access to scientific articles. And he rallied European funding agencies to start demanding that their articles from their research be published outside of paywalls, and that's Plan S. And it's made a huge difference because he coordinated a lot of funders together who otherwise might have been reluctant to mandate such a policy. So far, 16 funders have signed up to Plan S and many others have said that they will support it. It's a bit too early to know what this will ultimately mean, but it will improve access to research. And it's caused a huge furore and discussion about science publishing and is it possible to get all research open And really, um, Smits has been corralling all of that. It was just a one-year thing. So next year, he's off to uh, Eindhoven University of Technology, which is in his native Netherlands. And he told us, it's time for me to leave the commission at what I consider my height, which I, I love that quote.
4: Well, let's do one more for this Nature's 10 roundup, Richard. And this is a subject we've covered on the podcast before, and it's about graphene and it's about superconductors.
7: Yeah, we've picked Yuan Cao, who published two massively exciting papers this year, uh, where if you have two sheets of graphene, the single atom thin layer of carbon, and you just twist one of the sheets by 1.1 degrees compared to the other, you can turn this material from a conductor into an insulator or into a superconductor where electricity can flow without resistance. Now this is all at very cold temperatures so we haven't got useful superconductivity yet but it's incredibly exciting because that immediately suggests some curious physical mechanism that's opened up all kinds of new avenues for physicists looking at other twisted 2D materials, perhaps it might tell us how other more complex materials do superconduct at higher temperatures. I mean, it's just incredibly exciting and all the more amazing when you consider that Yuan Cao himself is just 22 years old. Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. Listeners, that's just four of Nature's
4: 10. To find out more about them and the other six who made the list, head over to nature.com slash news.
5: So that's it for our 2018 festive show. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone.
4: Yes, and thanks to all the researchers and reporters who took the time to talk to us here on the show. And finally, thanks to you, Ali Jennings. Uh, Listeners, I'm sad to say that Ali will shortly be leaving Nature after making some terrific podcast pieces and videos. Ali, where can the listeners find you, and what will you be up to next? Well, I'll be doing a monthly
5: video roundup of science news for the online news organisation Inside Science, as well as presenting various bits and bobs about the brain on television. And I might still
4: pop up on the podcast from time to time. So listeners, this is our last regular podcast of 2018, but I'll be back next week with a special end-of-year clips show. Look out for that. But to play us out this week, we've got one final song. Performed by Steve Waterman and Kim Coleman, with lyrics by Noah Baker. This is Hark! It's Hayabusa 2, about a space mission to land on an asteroid millions of miles away from the Earth. I'm Benjamin Thompson.
5: And I'm Ali Jennings. Thanks for listening
1: hak